Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If you want me to answer your questions, you have to send them to me at that email address. It is referenced below in the description section of this video, and I say it every episode, so that's how you get questions to me if you want me to answer them. If you send them to me by private message, if you tweet them at me, if you put them in the comments, there's no guarantee that I'm going to get them. Um, but if you email them to me, I will, and I'll put them in my queue, and I will try to get to them as quickly as I can. And I've got a long list, so I really am doing my best to work through it. But you guys are just so inquisitive, I can't keep up. <laughs> All right. Now, there were a couple points I wanted to bring up here um, that I feel are important to say that are uh, the end result of a, some thinking about things that I've been thinking about for a long time, not just necessarily current events, but, you know, uh, you guys can connect the dots as you see fit. I am a trauma survivor. That means that I had the unfortunate experience of being in the wrong place at the wrong time repeatedly. And that I made bad decisions along the way that put me and kept me in that position. As a second generation Scientologist, I didn't have a whole lot of choice in many of the things that happened to me, but I did have some choices. And, you know, um, eventually, after enough time, I got my head clear enough to get out of a very traumatic, abusive situation and then start talking about it. I want to be clear that the fact that I'm a trauma survivor does not make me a hero and it doesn't make me even a good person. It makes me somebody who had some bad experiences. I, the fact that I am here talking about those experiences, sharing the stories of others, trying to expose abusive behavior, that all, those are the actions I'm taking or the things that I'm saying and doing as a result of being a trauma survivor in an effort to try to help other people not have to experience what I experienced. That's what motivates me to do what I'm doing now. This channel is not so much anymore about my recovery or me being a victim of this traumatic abuse. It is about moving on with my life now and making something productive and useful out of it. So um, that's the actual truth of the situation with me and with my channel here. If you're here because you want to watch a victim, then you're in the wrong place. I, that's not who or what I am. I'm not that. That's, that's not how I choose to or want to be viewed or seen or identified. Um, and I think that that's important to clarify for you guys because there are people in the ex-cult world who are looky-loos, who are window, you know, are rubberneckers. They're interested in the train wreck of it. Um, you know, I'm not here to be your museum piece of a train wreck. And if that's what you think this is and what I'm here to do, then you have mistaken what my channel is about. So anyway, just wanted to put that out there. The other thing is um, I am reviewing, re-looking at my moderation policy and how I have dealt with comments on my channel. I polled my subscribers, you guys. I asked you guys what you thought of this. I had some kind of ridiculous answers in terms of um, free speech on my channel or in the comment section of my channel. I said I try to be a free speech advocate because I do. And for that, I got, well, if you're going to moderate your comments in any way, shape, or form, if you're going to delete and block anybody for any reason, then you are not a free speech advocate. And I basically uh, push back against that because there is no such thing anywhere in this world as your right to say whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, and everybody else is just supposed to put up with it. That right doesn't exist in the real world anywhere. So why should it have to exist in the comment section of my channel? I don't think it should. Now, the other side of this is that I have been coming to see 
that I have been using the comment section of my channel from day one, which, as I said before, many times my channel was and, you know, to a degree still is a recovery process for me. It's cathartic. It's, it's what I've been doing to heal and um, amongst other things. And, uh, and I have used the comment section as a kind of a support system for myself, which was also an error. Um, you know, looking for approval and um, satisfaction and uh, uh, good words and, you know, support from a, a bunch of anonymous people I've never met, don't know, will probably never have anything to do with, um, is probably not a real super good idea. I, of course, like anybody, you know, I like good comments and good feedback on my work. Like anybody, I don't appreciate being insulted. I don't appreciate being lied about or lied to. And um, that kind of goes with the territory. And it really, at the end of the day, it depends on how thick I want my skin to be as to how hard I should enforce a moderation policy on my comment section. And maybe my assumptions about how thin some of your skin is too, because I want my comment section on my videos, my whole channel, to be a nice, tolerant, good place. I want it to reflect my values and the values that I think are represent the majority of the audience that I've built and want to continue building. <laughs> you know, I feel like in many ways I'm only just getting started. So, um, so this is kind of, a, of a, a thing for me to look at and go, well, okay, how should I move forward here? Um, because sometimes people have said things that have absolutely rubbed me the exact wrong way. Whether they were purposefully done or not, that's what happened. Sometimes people have received the sharp end of my tongue. Sometimes I've regretted that. You know, so it's a, you know, it's a mixed bag of stuff here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to back off. Okay, on that whole thing. And if things get, um, if I hear things are getting really out of hand, um, you know, then I'll kind of, I'll come in and moderate or something. I was kind of amused. I have to tell you guys, I was a little amused by the number of, of you who talked about how other channels use volunteers or have somebody else come in and moderate the comments and stuff. Because I, I sort of was thinking, what, what, what army of volunteers do, do you all imagine I have at my fingertips? Because I don't have any. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of funny. Um, I'm also really, really bad at directing people on what to do because I, I'm just not, not good at that. Um, I used to be good at that, but um, I'm not anymore. So anyway, so that's also probably just comes back to me. Uh, anyway, point is, I don't have volunteers to do that work. I'm not going to ask Melissa to do it. I'm just going to kind of let it go. And, um, and if, you know, something really wild and crazy happens there that you guys, you know, as my subscribers, uh, feel is something horrible or awful that's happening in the comment section beyond the norm or beyond the pale of what should be there, please alert me and I'll do something about it. But I'm going to try to really, for my own, you know, I'm going to try to step back, and the reason I'm going to do that is actually based on the very good advice of people who've come before me, you know, major figures in the public arena who all uniformly say, you have to ignore that stuff for your own mental health. And I'm starting to get the idea of what they're talking about. You know, when you're a small channel, you're craving approval, you want feedback, you want to know what people are thinking about your work. Um... As I've grown my channel, I've been keenly interested, and uh, honestly, I always will be. There will always be part of me that that wants to know what you guys are thinking about my work, but there also is uh, another part of this where it just becomes, um, I, I wish I had better words, it, it, but it just does become a bit toxic. It becomes a bit difficult, and negativity bias is a thing. I know I've got it. You know, the vast, vast majority of you are wonderful people, very supportive, wonderfully so, and you leave brilliant, wonderful comments. And even those who disagree with me leave great comments sometimes that really get me thinking. And I love that. I really, truly do. 
unfortunately, you know, there are a percentage of them that are just all about the person virtue signaling their awfulness or, you know, to their group of awful people or whatever. And it, and it lands on my page and I have had the habit of deleting it or getting rid of it or blocking it. And I'm just telling you now, um, I'm not going to do that anymore. So anyway, that's kind of where that's at now. And uh, I thought you guys should know that. And um, that's going to be a change. And also, by the way, I am a little curious about what you think about the new intro on the show, because I tried to simplify it and kind of bring it out of the, um, I, I, I was looking at it again, sort of the, the who, what, when intro that I've been using for the last year and a half and the music and stuff. And I thought, oh, wow, I really kind of, uh, sampled from the, you know, the, the, the sixth grade videos we saw in school, you know, I was like, uh, so uh, whatever I was thinking when I put that together, I've changed my mind. So I tried to make it simpler, faster, easier to just get to the meat of the show. And uh, now we will go ahead and get to the meat of this show now that I've given out these announcements that I hope, you know, make sense and are uh, somewhat clarifying for you guys as to what I want to do moving forward here. So anyway, um, for those of you who have been supportive uh, and helpful and um, had my back, Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's get on with your answers now. Jeremy White. Do you think cult leaders are all fundamentally woven from the same cloth? I just finished watching the Waco miniseries on Netflix, and it got me wondering if perhaps David Koresh might have joined Scientology if he were introduced to that instead of the Branch Davidian offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And if so, would he have been a radical member or worked his way up to higher positions of power? Then, I wondered, Jim Jones. He didn't seem to much like being under authority, preferring to have the authority, so he might have been prone to pull a miscavige and systematically take over. Osho may well have delighted in the systems, brainwashing himself and eventually working up higher to gain control or influence. Koresh, Jones, Osho, Applewhite, etc., what do you think as a thought experiment about how these people would have responded to Scientology rather than their initial cults or religions? What an interesting question. Thank you for asking me this. So I'm going to give you a total supposition here. I mean, it's not like we have studies on this that I know of. Um, but you're asking me about cult leaders being in a position of being cult followers. And I, I wonder about that. I really, really wonder about that. We look at cult leaders through a lens of narcissism, malignant narcissism, solipsism. We use these terms to describe a mindset where an individual is very self-consumed and very, very much incapable of tolerating opposing points of view, um, disagreements, um, you know, clashes of will. These are individuals who are quite sure that they are right. And that their rightness demands that they actually take over the uh, will of others and, um, what's the word, sort of, uh, well, enslave their will, I guess would be a word, um, to theirs, you know, to the leaders, so that those people, you know, so they can kind of feed off of the energy, approval, love, fervor of those followers. That's the codependency of the relationship. So could these guys have lived a different life where they would have been followers instead? Well, I think anything's possible. Because we don't understand, you know, all the various things that influence each decision at the crossroads of our lives, um, you know, because there's such a multiplicity of factors and the context of our life has so much to do with the decisions that we make, Man, you know, I can see scenarios where any of these individuals could have grown up under a different circumstance, maybe under a different household with a different education, and because of that situation, maybe they would not have developed the way that they did. Um, you know, there's a nurture-nature balance here, and we do not know what that balance is yet. We just know that there's a whole lot of factors in that decision-making basket that you know, cause us to make the decisions that we make. So 
I look at this in terms of tendencies, you know, uh, genetic tendencies, cultural tendencies, like what, you know, probabilities, where would the person probably go? And I think that with these leader types, could they be followers? Yeah, they could be under the right circumstances. Sure, they could. I think that they would all have had a tendency to rise in any group they were part of. I think that that was part of their personality package, if you will. Um, I think that they would have sought power or control over others to some degree or another. But, you know, the thing about power and control over others is you can wield it for good or you can wield it for bad. It doesn't have to be just a harmful, destructive weapon. Sometimes, often, there are many, many circumstances where people need to be controlled and you need to exert power and authority over them in order to get them to do the right thing or get them into, you know, a controlled situation where things are out of control, like an emergency, a fire in a building, you know, something like that. So, so there's lots of contexts where those are positive, good traits to have. Um, and there are contexts where they are not. <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, so the, I guess you asked, are cult leaders all fundamentally woven from the same cloth? I say cult leaders all operate off the same playbook. They have all come to a place in their lives where they've made distinct, important, and, and, and very firm decisions that their life is going to go a certain way. And they then start acting accordingly. The way they want their life to go is they want to be in a position of power. They don't want other people telling them what to do. They keenly are interested in, you know, sucking up the energy, money, sex, power that comes from people following you. That is absolutely a decision point. People do not luck into becoming cult leaders. You, it's a skill set that is worked over um, to one degree or another, each or, or there's a natural talent and charisma there. Either way, the playbook rolls out very, very similar from one group to another to another. How the cult leader got to the place where he is a cult leader, that is a varied and, and road with lots of different paths and, 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 and avenues and side rails and things like that in it, you know? And that's really the best I can do while trying, to, while trying to stay as honest as I can about it. You know, it'd be easy to go, yeah, they're all the same guy, just different bodies or something. But life's too complicated for that. And I don't, I don't think simple answers like that really satisfy, you know. Um, it's important to study these personalities that professionals actually do that. And like professional psychologists, psychiatrists, clinical psychiatrists, sociologists, right? We, this is why academia is failing us so badly in this and why we need them to catch up and look at these, you know, groups and individuals, you know, as the dominating personalities that they are and the context that creates evil, bad situations and bad groups, and look at how do these things, what are the common denominators of this that lead to this road? Because I don't think that's been mapped at all. We have vague general ideas of what makes serial killers or what or the kind of symptoms or, or activities that serial killers get up to as young people, as, as teens, as, as uh, young adults, and eventually as adults. Um, you know, we've got kind of uh, of that, that, that symptom trail kind of laid out a little bit. Uh, things like, you know, experimenting on or killing little animals as children, stuff like that, moving up to bigger and bigger animals until they're eventually killing people. Um, you know, domineering parents, physical abuse. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of things on that little checklist. Um, we don't have a similar lineup or study of cult leaders, or narcissistic personalities, if you will, you know, leader position narcissists. Um, I mean, some narcissists are just janitors. They don't they don't crave power and glory and success and sex and money and all that. They're just self-consumed. So even in the world of narcissists, there is a differentiation there. You can't just throw a label of narcissist on a guy and go, okay, that solves it. That's the picture. There it is. That's 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 you know that, that now we understand everything about it. <laughs> you know, I wish. 
So anyway, that's kind of where it's at. Um, and I hope that answer helps a little bit, uh, even though it's not probably what you were looking for. Katie LaSalle. I have this friend who I've known for nearly 20 years. Since she's around my mom's age, I consider her my auntie. She's a wonderful human being and a wise soul. I love and care about her very much. The only glitch in our friendship is that she's a devoted Jehovah's Witness. Since day one, she tried to convert me and uses very subtle methods. It doesn't matter to her that I am Catholic. When she notices I'm down, slash weak, slash depressed, she never misses the opportunity to slide the have a Bible study with me line, meaning come and join Jehovah Witness. Before I met my husband, she would even tell me that I should marry a Jehovah Witness because they are the most ethical men. Really? Like the Sea Org? I learned over the years how to ignore her efforts, but I must admit it's still awfully creepy. Watching your channel gave me great insight in understanding people in cults. I do believe my auntie doesn't mean harm. Jehovah Witness helped her, so she thinks they will help slash save me. Your videos also confirmed what I always suspected of cults, specifically the goal of isolating and stealing money. My auntie is twice divorced. Her first husband took custody of the children back in her homeland, and she came to the U.S. to marry her second husband, and her whole social life evolves around the Jehovah Witness. She used to have a successful business, but now she has retired and lives in a low-level retirement home. Watching her financial decline was shocking to me, and I'm pretty sure it's because every penny she got was donated to the church. It's also sad that her biological families seem distant towards her, even her two children, as I'm sure her endless converting efforts wore them down. My question is this. If my auntie is happy in her religion, should she be left alone and there's no need to intervene to open her eyes? Is our relationship a true friendship if, in fact, she has hidden agendas of converting me? Do you have any suggestion for dealing with having a friend in a cult, wanting to maintain the friendship, yet needing to tell him slash her to stop in their converting efforts? Okay, Katie, thank you very much for this question. Now, really, the decision is going to be on you because you've, you've definitely presented a whole scenario here, but really not enough information to, for me to tell you what to do about your auntie other than say you have to decide which part of this relationship is more important to you, keeping her happy or your honesty and happiness and openness with her. It's perfectly fine to have a social relationship with somebody who's in a destructive cult, and it's perfectly fine to maintain a friendly relationship with somebody who's in a destructive cult. I encourage people to do that. I don't think we should be shunning people who are in these groups or trying to kick them out of our lives or something like that. Not if we're that closely, intimately connected with them and we care about them and they care about us as human beings first. If that relationship is there and established, don't let a cult come between that. That would be my first point. Um, the second point, of course, being that she will never get out of that situation if everybody just abandons her because people double down always on their beliefs. And that's, of course, what she's going to do in the face of attacks or feeling defensive or feeling like she's, you know, needs to protect herself. Remember, all of these beliefs are in a thought fortress in her mind. And she has built walls. Very, very solid, very thick walls. That's what it means to be in a destructive cult. And those walls are not going to surrender to you just coming along and knocking on the door and going, hey, this doesn't make any sense. You know, it's, it's a deeper, deeper well than that. And if you want to do or stage some kind of intervention with her or series of conversations that you premeditatively want to create an effect of changing her life, you have to decide first whether you have the right to do that, whether that is really the right thing for her, not for you, and how you're going to best go about doing that if it is the right thing to do. You know, she's at the end stages of her life. She has led a full life, couple marriages, families, etc. I would encourage her to try to get back in touch with or get in touch, get in better touch with her family and her friends, any friends she does have, 
and maybe somehow get across to her, I think my avenue of attack, just with what you told me, and this could be completely wrong. But, okay, so I so if this doesn't feel right to do, then don't do it. But I my attitude or my thinking about your situation is I would try to approach her, not from the point of view of how bad the Jehovah's Witnesses are or how they've ruined her life, ruined her finances, you know, ruined her relationships. I wouldn't go on that tack. I would go on the tack of, do you want to have closer relationships? Do you ever feel regrets? Do you ever feel bad or sorrowful or, you know, feel a little misty-eyed ever about, you know, the fact that your family's a little distant, that you've driven, you know, I wouldn't put it this way, but, you know, that you've driven friends away because of your efforts to convert them all, you know. But somehow have that conversation. However, it needs to be had for her so her hackles don't get raised, her, you know, her thought fortress doesn't get slammed shut on you. You know, you got to let her invite you in. And it sounds like she's somebody who is willing to talk to you and have real conversations. So slowly but surely, maybe you could open or broach this topic with her and see if she's willing to engage. And if she is, if there is regret, if there is any kind of feeling on her part that she could have done better, or maybe there was something she did that could have possibly put some um, barriers between her and her family or friends, and then go to, now what do you think those barriers might be? What do you think you might be doing or have done? You know, like I said, this is this is careful, and, I, and this is just one of what could be 20 different approaches you take to this. This is just the one that's occurring to me right now as I'm talking. So somehow indirectly getting her to see that she is the one who has created this, this situation around her, and perhaps she could then invite herself to not do that and to maybe try to strengthen her relationships with just common everyday talk, love, support, compassion, etc., and not religion, you know. Um, if it could somehow be gotten across to her that people simply disagree on things and that's okay. I mean, even something as fundamental as that, you know. However that approach would fit for your circumstances, that's pretty much the best advice I can give. I, I hope it's helpful. Laurent Sauclair. How do you feel about picking your battles now that you are out of Scientology? How can we find a balance in your opinion? I still struggle with it to this day. <laughs> you and me both. Okay. Um, I'm going to be brutally honest about a couple of things right now, and I, I hope that's okay. Um, I've always been honest, but now I'm going to be brutally honest <laughs> about myself, okay? Um you know, my moods go up and down, um, and I have picked some really, really stupid battles to get into and some really stupid hills to die on in the past. Um, the past being all the way up to yesterday. <laughs> so, uh, or today even, you know, this is something I'm constantly thinking about, in other words. And I have had some definite triggering impulse problems with responding to people sometimes. And other times I've had problems, and this has all pretty much been on social media, but also in real life. Um, and I've also had issues with, you know, sort of poking the bear when I'm feeling a little impetuous or a little, you know, snide or snarky or whatever. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll start a fight here sort of thing, right? Or maybe I'll antagonize this person for having expressed this view, even though, you know, it really, I, I know it's just not going to go anywhere. Um, but I've always had this idea in my head, see, that, I can change their mind. I can I can do something about that. I can I can make it better. And I have to admit, I'm pretty sure at this point that that's just a holdover from Scientology. <laughs> um, it, you know, this is one of those slow burn lessons that you have to get. I had to get through repetition, and uh, and making the mistake again and again and again and again and again. Until you realize that it's just kind of wearing, I realized for me, it was wearing me down. And it wasn't helping anybody else to be like that. So 
Um, so that's why you hear me at the very beginning of the episode here talking about kind of letting go a little bit on the moderation, kind of letting go a little bit on having to respond to every bad comment that gets made on my channel or having to do something about it. You know, Scientology has this motto about something can be done about it. Something can always be done about it is there is one of their mantras. Something can always be done about it. That's bullshit. Something cannot always be done about it. And sometimes people don't come around and make nasty, snarky things or, or, or even not nasty, snarky things. Sometimes people just don't come and express their opinion because they're looking for a fight. You know, my, my channel, for example, my comment section, my social media pages don't have to be argument clubs, right? Like Monty Python, right? You know, I came here for an argument. No, you came here for an argument. I, you know, I'm feeling less and less need to, to, to be that way in these days. And, um, and, I, and I, that's a real sea change for me. That's a good thing. Um, and I want that to continue and, and grow <laughs> as my channel moves forward and as I move forward through life. Um, maybe it's an age thing for me too. I'm, you know, I'm 50 now. I'm, I, there were definite viewpoint shifts when I hit, when I hit 50 and I'm, I, you know, I look at the things that, that young people get so enthusiastic and wild and, and passionate and into, and, you know, this is everything, this is going to be the thing. And I have to, this is the hill I have to die on. And you go, really? You know, cause I died on that hill about five times and it didn't really, the hill's still there. And I'm still here, actually, and so is the guy that I, who killed me, you know, and we're all still here, and that hill didn't change one inch, uh, despite my dying on it, you know, you know what I mean? Um, so how do I pick my battles? I'm trying to give it the longer look now. I'm trying to look bigger than just the impulsive right now, you know, um, I'm trying to see you know, from my past of now I've got enough past to look at and see all the mistakes and go, um, that I know that people can change their minds. I know that the world can become a better place. I know I can contribute to that. But I now know for absolute surety with 100% certainty <laughs> that, um, that I'm not saving the world and no one is saving the world. And, um, and the impulse to try to make the world a better place by changing this one person or having this one fight is for the birds. It's just, it's a waste of everybody's time. Um, so my battles now are, you know, in the, in the broader direction of figuring out ways I can be a better educator, a better communicator, a, um, a better, you know, creator. Uh, a better show host, a better interviewer. You know, I want to I want to work on those kind of problems and not work on the problems of how to win arguments on social media or something. You know, um, this is this is the hardest thing. And I think the balancing point when you when you ask about you know how do you find balance? Well, I haven't really been finding a lot of balance, but I think I'm got that in sight now, and I think that is um, balancing my own mental health versus this mission statement that I am running my life on um, and realizing that that isn't the be-all end-all of, of my existence that I, th that I used to think it was, you know, and it's okay to chill. It's okay to take a night off. It's okay to not fight that fight. The world's going to keep going, you know. Um, Maybe you need a lot of backstory to understand everything I just said. I, I hope not. I hope I was clear there. Um, I hope this is a helpful answer, but it's kind of what's on my mind lately about this, uh, which is which prompted me to answer your question. And it's just funny to me that you hit me with this right when all this stuff is going on in my head. So uh, good timing. <laughs> and uh, there you go. Brett Rawson. It's no secret that Tom Cruise is the most famous public Scientologist worldwide. And the COB is always trying to use him to promote the church as much as possible. He was even given that award and made the video about how dedicated he is to clearing the planet. With all that being said, I'm sure Cruz has given millions of dollars to the church, but with a simple Google search, he is still the second richest actor in the world. 
As much as the church loves its money and how dedicated Tom Cruise is, wouldn't it be expected of him to donate most, if not all, of that to the church? How can he sit on that nest egg and expect to clear the planet? Hey, great question, Brent. Now, I can't peer into David Miscavige's or Tom Cruise's heads, but what I can tell you is that the total, the first thing that occurs to me is the total value of an individual is not just a pile of cash sitting in their bank account or sitting in their front room or, you know, pallets of cash in their garage. It's, uh, it's stocks. It's, it's valuations of assets. It, you know, like Tom Cruise owns a production company with films. I mean, that's part of his value because he's a personal stakeholder in that. So when you look at total valuation of celebrities or CEOs or this kind of stuff that we banter about all the time, you're not talking about, and this is, I'm surprised how generally not understood this is, that this doesn't mean that's how much cash on hand they have. Um, Tom Cruise doesn't, you know, he's got plenty of money and the cash that he does have on hand, he throws it at Scientology, he throws it at his production company, he throws it at his projects, you know, he's throwing it up in space now because he wants to go film up in space with Elon Musk. And I'm just like, yep, that's Tom Cruise. Um, yeah. So, um, so it's an interesting question, you know, it's like, wouldn't he be expected to donate most, if not all of it? Not necessarily. If what he's investing his money is in as a Scientologist is what he thinks and what Miscavige thinks is somehow forwarding the message of Scientology and disseminating it to the masses, getting the good word out, in other words. And if Tom Cruise is modeling the good behavior that a Scientologist is supposed to model in real life by being a good example, an ethical example, so he does donate to charities, stuff like that. He's got trusts. He's got good good work that he's done. I have to acknowledge that. I have to I have to say that that's true. Um, even though I still hate and despise the guy as an individual, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> but if he's doing those things, then that is fitting the role, as L. Ron Hubbard laid out, of what we expect of a Scientologist. That's the name of an issue that Hubbard wrote, I think back in 1960, where he talked about you know, how you need to get out on the comm lines of the world, the communication lines of the world, and make a good effort, give a good, you know, um, ex- set a good example. And I think that's how Tom Cruise envisions he's living his life. Um, so I think that's why uh, he is... You know, still got all that money or property or asset valuation. Same with the other celebrities, you know. But but you got to know that these guys, Nancy Cartwright, Tom Cruise, uh, maybe some of the others, I don't know, uh, Michael Pena, Elizabeth Moss, you know, et cetera, they are probably giving a lot, a lot, a lot of money to Scientology. I mean, just uh, unimaginably large sums of money over time. I mean, the Valley organization is pretty much there because Nancy Cartwright kept matching donations, you know, for other people. Did that get credited toward the total amount of money she's donated to Scientology? Probably in some ledger somewhere, but we're not going to see that. We're only going to see her IAS total donations because that's what gets published in the IAS Impact magazine. So there's also other avenues of donation that celebrities make or can make, which we don't ever even see or hear anything about. So there is that factor as well. And I hope that answer satisfies. Tom Willett, what are your thoughts on the 5G controversy? I think there could be some concerns for our long-term health, somewhat like asbestos, which we can't predict. However, I also see some quite alarming behavior, apocalyptic predictions, and a denial of science because that's just what, insert Big Pharma, George Soros, etc., want you to think, and is currently being linked to the coronavirus outbreak. Largely spread online, could you see this as a rising decentralized cult as people choose their news and close off outside voices? I don't particularly see this kind of behavior as cultish behavior because, you know, again, according to the modeling that I've put together and that many, many other people have put together, I mean, I just sort of go off their work. Um, 
cults are an abusive relationship between a leader and his followers or, or her followers. Whether it's a one-to-one or one-to-million relationship, there's still that element of it. And I don't see this 5G fear as that. I see it as a cultural phenomenon, sociological phenomenon, if you will, of groupthink, of distrust of authority, distrust of science, scientific illiteracy, these various factors coming together on a group level to create a fringe you know, minority of people who are terrified of technology or terrified of change are terrified of new, novel technologies that they don't understand on top of a whole pile of technologies that they also don't understand, which they have already incorporated into their life and which, for whatever reason, they feel freaked out about. Could these thoughts all come from um, a single propaganda source? Probably not. It's probably a collection of them. Because there's plenty of them. I mean, look at all the various conspiracy groups and conspiracy peddlers from Gwyneth Paltrow's goop nonsense to Alex Jones and David Icke and their nonsense. You've got a wide spectrum of acceptability and believability between these polls. And there's a lot of stuff there to believe. And whenever there's progress, there is always, always pushback against that progress. That's literally the push and pull of any society is forward progress and the pushback against it and some forward progress and some pushback against it. And that that cycle just repeats across all spectrums, all areas, all subjects. So with technology, fine. We see it with 5G. You know, we used to have this with the cell phones, right? I mean, you were going to get cancer for doing this. And... um, you know, that can create its own issues because, of course, you know, suggestibility opens the door to people having psychosomatic problems and that just proves that they were right. And, I mean, it's just sort of like this dwindling spiral of madness and irrationality that occurs around this stuff, mostly because it doesn't occur to these folks to actually go get educated on what these technologies are really all about. Often you see uh, shining examples in these movements or these social phenomena of Dunning-Kruger, the Dunning-Kruger effect, where the, the more incompetent or illiterate or uneducated a person is on a topic, the more positive they are that they are right in their assessment of that subject or area or situation. And when people are afraid, I mean, afraid, fear... That's a default position for a lot of people. They'll go there first. And and if they don't know any better or know what else to think about a thing or they've adopted this view that, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow said it was bad, so it must be bad, then that's where we get those things from. And um, I wish I could say we'll eventually evolve out of that and we won't have that anymore and everybody can be gotten on the same page. But I have been very, very thoroughly disabused of that notion uh, over time here, and I, and I don't think that's true at all. I think as we see back in the early 1900s, there were the technocrats who thought for sure that technology was going to save the world and was going to revolutionize politics and leadership and society. Well, it did, but not necessarily in the ways they imagined it would. And, um, you know, there was this whole push for a while to only have, like, you know, scientists and technologically minded people in positions of power and stuff. And this is sort of the opposite of that, right? It's the, it's the pushback against that. And um, so you can kind of get this stuff going both ways, right? You can get the avidly for and the avidly against. And usually the truth works out or the, the, the eventuality of reality works out to be, end up being something in the middle, So, you know, as far as what drives the thinking of people to be that way, there's a lot of factors. I mean, it could be anything from a midlife crisis to a traumatic episode to indoctrination, propaganda, a mixture of all these things. You get the picture. So that's that's those are my thoughts on this stuff. Whenever I think about these things or or I'm presented with this stuff, this is the kind of stuff I think about. And I just go, yeah, there's another one. Okay, well, hope we get past that one soon. (laughs) You know, uh, because the next piece of technology will come out 
and it'll be, you know, just as terrifying to a whole nother set of people or something. And, and this, is how, this is how society rolls out. Andrew Fabro, why is exteriorization such a big deal in Scientology? Did you ever exteriorize, and what was it like? Does science explain this as simply a hallucination? If so, why do so many Scientologists have the same hallucination? Everyone seems to talk about exteriorizing. Or is that a myth? Jason Begay stated that he experienced doing TR0 very early on, and it was a major inducement. At what points do Scientologists experience exteriorization, and is it universal? Okay, thanks for the question, Andrew. Uh, no, it is not universal. Not by a long shot is exteriorization universal in Scientology or part of any standard Scientology experience. It used to be, though. Way back in the 50s, Hubbard was keen to get people to admit that they had exteriorized, popped out of their head. And he was working on all kinds of commands and processes in order to do that. The most successful one, he said, being, and you could even do this over the air on radio and TV, and Scientologists did try this, is you could say, be three feet back of your head. Some of you might have just experienced the idea of being, seeing things in the room from three feet back of your head. If you did, congratulations, you have now gone exterior. Now I will use another exteriorization process on you in case that didn't work. Try not to be three feet back of your head. Some of you, completely subconsciously, just out of your control entirely, just popped three feet back of your head, right? You got the idea of what it would look like to be three feet behind your head. That's imagination, folks. That's not you popping out of your head. That's not exteriorization. It is a hallucination. It's one that you created. Um, I mean, you know, from the point of view of a hallucination, meaning not like you're crazy, a hallucination meaning, you know, you perceive something that doesn't exist. We do it all the time. So um, we wouldn't have anything approximating what we know of as the experience of imagination if we couldn't do that. So, you know, don't think there's anything wrong with that. The problem is when you start acknowledging those ideas that are created as reality. And that's where L. Ron Hubbard pushed people hard to go on this subject of exteriorization because he thought from experience at the time that, that somebody admitting that they had exteriorized would therefore be proving to themselves that Scientology works because what other possible explanation could there be for popping out of your head or seeing things from the corner of the room or whatever the experience you had was, what other explanation could there be than you are a Thetan, a spiritual entity, and you just proved it? Because how else could that possibly have happened? That's, it's all in the interpretation of the event, you see, that, that, that Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard get power. So, um, you know, is it uh, everyone seems to be talking about exteriorization? No, everybody's not talking about exteriorization. It is a popular topic, but it's not a universal standard that you have to meet in order to go up the bridge or be a Scientologist. The entire time I was in Scientology... I never once went exterior with full perception, quote-unquote. And that's the big game in Scientology, is going exterior with full perception. In other words, you can see, feel, sense, touch, what's going on around you, and you could take off to Mars if you wanted to and, you know, roam around on the poles or go check out Venus or something, you know. If you're exteriorized, why not? Go for it, sure, you know. Um, lots of Scientologists talk about that. And... They're talking out their ass, you know, because you could send them over into the other room and send another person over there and have that person write down uh, or, or send another person in the room, keep the exteriorized person here, you know, have them write down on a piece of paper some message and have, you know, hey, what they write down on the paper, you know, <laughs> and you're going to find they're going to get it wrong probably around 100% of the time. So, you know, are they exterior? Of course not. But they think they are. And L. Ron Hubbard specifically said in the materials of Scientology, do not test someone. Do not side check them. Do not do what I just described because you'll be invalidating their experience and you will be making it 10 times harder for them to go exterior next time because of this big invalidation that you laid on them. 
their truth is their reality, and that is how is that's how reality works, according to L. Ron Hubbard. You know, what's true for you is true and all that. Um, there have been people who have correctly argued that Hubbard wasn't saying all of reality is relative, but you know, as Scientology is truly practiced within the culture of Scientology, reality is completely relative. So, you know, so that's a that's a truth there. Um, and as far as what Scientologists are experiencing with that, we've talked about disassociation, most specifically with John Atack, many times. And that is the, the, the psychological description of what's going on when you are thinking that you are somewhere outside of your own body. You know, unless you're going to go into the spiritual realm or some wooey sort of uh, pseudoscience explanation for things, there is no scientific rationale for a spiritual existence or for popping out of your head. So as that is experienced, it's considered a low-grade form of disassociation. And, um, and I agree that that's probably what's going on there. So that's the explanation for it. And I, I hope that was an in, informative answer for you. Okay, and that is our show for this week. Whew. Thank you very much for everybody uh, who came around. I hope I didn't stick my foot in my mouth too hard this week. <laughs> Probably got in all kinds of trouble, but who cares? Um, I'm, I really, truly am caring less and less about this stuff. But I have to tell you guys that uh, it's pretty obvious that, you know, I don't like um, being lied about, and I really don't like the fact that that I'm being lied about in such a way that there's really nothing I can do about it. And that's my problem to solve, and I am solving it. So um, I just wanted you guys to know that, you know, it's a thing. It happens. And it's part probably of just growing a successful channel that I need to just kind of get my wits around that and deal with it. So that's how I'm trying to handle that. Um, again, thank you very much for coming around and listening to me maunder on here. I really appreciate your viewership and your support. And I hope you will join us, by the way, on Wednesday for our call-in show because my wife, Melissa, and I sit here and we've done two shows so far and it's been a blast. I'm looking forward to the call-in show every week more than anything else because I love talking to you guys. And I think there's a lot of potential there to have some really, really great talks about all kinds of stuff. So that's kind of the hope with that show. It's a bit of a free-for-all and it's going to be fun. Um, anyway, so anyway, I hope to see you guys there. And um, if you are enjoying my content and um, and this isn't TLDR, then <laughs> consider joining me on Patreon because that's what keeps these lights on and keeps this show going and keeps my channel functioning. So, all right, guys, see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>